Last week, we began a a three-week sermon series called Cedar Home, One Family, One Church, or sorry, One Family, One Savior, One Mission. And this is our 125th year as a church family. And we give all praise to God for that. And if you want to learn more about the history of our church, I encourage you to get your hands on a, a history book, which our secretary, Julie, could point you to. But Charlotte Faust put it all together. There's a really nice nice display out on this side if you haven't seen that yet of some of the history of our church and uh, Charlotte's here with us today we're thankful that Charlotte took the train from Montana to be here today so thank you Charlotte um, as we've been looking at our, our church history we've discovered that there have been a number of pivotal moments at which our church has had to decide what kind of church do we want to be What kind of church? There are a lot of different churches. What kind do we want to be and which direction do we want to go? And our church history speaks for itself. Which direction do we want to go? Well, Cedar Home has always been a church that has chosen the direction of reaching lost people with the gospel of Jesus in our community. That's the church that we want to be. That's where we want to go. And throughout our history, we have made great sacrifices and changes in order to do that. We have changed the name of this church in order to better reach the community in the past. We have changed the actual language of our church in order to reach people in our community. We've changed our programs. We've changed our physical location in order to most effectively reach lost people with the love and gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is an awesome thing because pursuing lost people and welcoming new people into our church is exactly what Jesus commanded us to do. It wasn't a recommendation. It was a a command. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we looked at this last week. We read, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So as a church family, we want to bring God glory, okay? In everything we do, we want to bring God glory. We want to see the Lord Jesus lifted high. We want to see him exalted. We want to see him adored. We want to see Jesus obeyed and worshiped well here. And we want to glorify the Lord as a church family by making more disciples, because that's what Jesus tells us to do. We want to make more followers of Jesus. We want more people to experience the eternal life and joy of freedom that is available in Jesus Christ. And as we do that, the Lord receives more worship and more adoration through changed lives. It is, it is a win-win, and we want, to, we want to be part of that. So Cedar Home exists to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus. We talked all about that last Sunday, and today we want to talk about how we're going to do that, how we're going to make more disciples of Jesus. And, and so that means we open our Bible and we ask, what biblical guidelines 
tell us how to do this, how to make disciples. And when we look at the Bible and, and when we see what does God love and what does God command, and when we look and see how did the early church, the first Christians, live together on mission, what we see is that the Christian church has been shaped and purposed uh, by four main purposes. The, uh, to worship, uh, to connect, or to be in community, to serve, and to multiply. And so as a church, our big purpose is to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus through gospel-centered worship and community and service and multiplication. That is Cedar Home's purpose statement, and it's not something we created. These four purposes have guided God's church for 2,000 years. And so with the authority of Jesus given to us, Cedar Home, and with the presence of Jesus promised to us, we are a church family on mission together to joyfully, intentionally, and expectantly make more disciples of Jesus Christ for his glory. So today, let's open up God's word to see how the first Christians pursued this mission together. If you've got your Bible with you, please turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll be in verses 36 to 37. And if you don't own a Bible, then let us know after the service. We'd be glad to give you one. Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 47. And as you're turning to that passage, let me tell you what the context is what's happening here. Jesus has already been condemned by the Romans, sent to the cross. He died on the cross for the sin of his church. He's risen from the dead three days later, just as he said he would. He then spent 40 days visiting with lots of different people in his physical body so that they could see him with their own eyes, so that they could talk to him, interact with him, and so that they could actually physically touch him. And then before leaving, Jesus got all the disciples together and he commanded them. He gave them a mission. He said, go make more disciples. And after that, Jesus physically ascended up into the sky as they watched him ascend to heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And a while after Jesus went to heaven, the disciples were all together in one place when the Holy Spirit came upon them in a, in a powerful and new way. He filled them. And the disciples were immediately able to speak in foreign tongues or languages. The Holy Spirit gave them that ability, it says, because at that time in Jerusalem, were devout Jews from many different nations who spoke many different languages. And so God gave the disciples the ability to speak different languages so that they could preach the gospel in the native languages of the Jews in Jerusalem. And this was, this was a crazy sight. This was a wild sight to see. And all the bystanders were like, what is up here? Okay, they're looking at the disciples. And finally they concluded, these guys are drunk. That's what it says. These guys are drunk. They're out of their minds. They're crazy. When Peter says this, he, he stands up 
and he was one of the main leaders of the early church. He stood up in the crowd and he preached the gospel to the crowd there. And at the end of his sermon, let's pick up in Acts 2.36, we read, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Jesus Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Then in verses 37 to 47, we read, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. So what I want to do is I want to first study the passage a little bit. And then I want to point out where we see the four purposes uh, of our mission in this passage. And then I want to share five applications. So first, let's, let's look at the passage. Peter stood up and preached the gospel, and through the gospel, the Holy Spirit, it says, powerfully cut the hearts of the people in the crowd, which means that many in the crowd were convicted by the Holy Spirit of the rebellion against God. They were convicted that they realized that they were spiritually lost without Jesus. And now they believed something different. They believed that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was God, that Jesus really was without sin, unlike every other person who's ever lived. They believed that faith in Jesus was their only hope to receive God's forgiveness and to, to receive God's grace and to receive this eternal life that Jesus promised them. We read that as the Holy Spirit worked, 3,000 people trusted in Jesus that day, and they were baptized, and they were added to the church. 
Can you imagine having 3,000 new members of your church in one day? Praise God, that would be a great problem to have. That would be, that would be great, right? We'd be talking about another building project if that was, if that was the case. But the verse 42 says that under the leadership of the apostles, the members of the early church devoted themselves to four main things, okay? They devoted, meaning they persevered together in doing four activities together. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, okay? The first Christians devoted themselves to learning from the apostles. So what were the apostles' teaching? Well, as we study the New Testament letters of the apostles that they wrote, we see that the heart of everything they taught was Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Okay? That's the heart of the Bible. The, the apostles believed all of God's word, that it was inerrant, that it was true, that it was perfect, and they helped the first Christians see that Jesus is the Savior of the world who fulfilled all of God's commands and his law and all of the ancient prophecies. The apostles preached the gospel. The gospel is a word that means good news. They preached the good news about Jesus. And the core message of that gospel is that Jesus Christ is God and that he was born of a virgin miraculously and that he lived a life without sin, without disobedience to God, without rebelling against God. His life was characterized by perfect love and perfect wisdom. The likes of which we've never seen in the history of humanity and we will not ever see again. Jesus willingly died on the cross as a substitute for the sin of the world so that whoever trusts in him might receive his righteousness, have his holiness given to them, and so that he might take their sin away from them. And on the cross, he put our sin to death. He put our penalty to death. He put our old dead selves to death with him. And just as he predicted three days later, he rose from the dead. He rose from the tomb as our conqueror over death as the one and only God who has conquered death forever. And he ascended into heaven where he sits at God's right hand and he's interceding for his church and he's waiting for the appointed time to come back to earth again to judge the living and the dead. That is the good news of the gospel. That will change your life because it means that in Jesus Christ, you don't have to be hopeless. You don't have to be dead. You don't have to have guilt you don't have to worry about what other people think of you because your identity is in Jesus Christ now, okay? You can be united to God himself. You don't have to fear death, which for many, many years has been the great enemy of humanity, but now is a gate through which we go to experience more joy than we've ever known in the presence of God. That's all because of Jesus. 
Because of Jesus, we can have a friendship, a living friendship with God. We can talk to him throughout the day. We can pray to him. We abide in him. We depend on him. And we live to worship him with our lives. Whoever believes this is saved from hell and from death. Do you guys believe it? (laughs) If you're here today and you don't know if you believe it, I encourage you to have conversations with people who do believe it because there's not a more important question that you could wrestle with today. You do not know if you will see tonight. You don't know if you will see tomorrow. Investigate and do this. Pray to God, God, would you please open my eyes? Would you please give me faith? If you're the real deal, God, please enter me, save me, make me yours. Because only God can do it. And he wants to do it and he loves you. Don't put it off. Don't put it off. When a person surrenders to Jesus through faith, then God does something very special. He does a lot of things. He, because of Jesus, he declares you not guilty for all of your past, present, and future sins against God. And at the same time, God adopts you spiritually into his family, which he calls his church. The church here on earth is the setting in which we learn to love God and we learn to love one another. And through the teaching and preaching of God's word and by the power of his Holy Spirit, God graciously transforms us as individuals and as a church family into the likeness of Jesus so that we might experience more freedom, more life, more joy, and so that God might receive more glory, which he deserves. This is the gospel that the apostles taught. This is the teaching of the apostles to which the church devoted itself. The second activity that the early church devoted itself to was fellowship. Christian fellowship means to link arms with other Christians in order to see God's mission lived out in our lives. It doesn't mean just hanging out with other Christians. It means we're talking about Jesus. It means we love Jesus. It means we want to worship Jesus and serve Jesus and reach the lost with Jesus together. And the early church fellowshiped by simply, as a starting point, being together a lot. They were together a lot. They, they lived their lives together. There wasn't, there wasn't um, Christian Bob on Sunday morning and then non-Christian Bob the rest of the days of the week. There wasn't church Bob and then other people. The church was in uh, each other's lives together throughout the week. There weren't isolated Christians who simply read their Bibles at home. They didn't have Bibles at at home in the early church. There were Christians who were part of the family and attended worship services and gatherings together. So the way that we Christians get to know one another, the way that we grow together, the way that we fellowship intentionally is by being together with Jesus at the center of our focus. The third activity that the early church devoted itself to was breaking bread together. 
This means that they shared meals together. They, they were in each other's houses eating meals together as they talked about Jesus. And breaking bread also probably means that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And we don't know exactly what that looked like in the early church, whether they took the Lord's Supper in their homes or whether they took it when they were all together as a large church family like in this setting. But what we do know is that they were breaking bread together, they were sharing meals together often, and they were celebrating Jesus together. And the fourth activity that we see here that the early church devoted itself to was praying together. The first Christians not only prayed privately, you know, in their homes, but they also prayed when they were together. And as we look through the New Testament, we can see what were those prayers for? Well, we see they prayed prayers of worship to Jesus. They prayed prayers for one another in Jesus' name. They prayed for friends and family and strangers who hadn't trusted in Jesus yet. They prayed for healings and miracles. They prayed for courage to share the gospel with boldness and with love. If we really want more Jesus in our lives, and if we really want more of Jesus' power in our church family, Cedar Home, if we really want the world out there to know Jesus, then the best thing we can do is pray to God in Jesus' name, okay? Because Jesus is the one with the authority. He has all authority, all power over you and over me, and over everybody who lives in this community, and over every created thing. He has power over that sun in the sky, and over the the mountains that we saw this morning, over the rain that we've seen. He has power over it all. All things, all people belong to Jesus, and he does whatever he wants with them whenever he wants. So he's the one we want to talk to. He's the one we want to pray to. And we do that privately, and as families, And in our discipleship relationships together, and in our community groups, and in our worship services. Julie Pierce has a quote on her her computer that says, when we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. We need God to work in and through us. So we pray to God. The early church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread together, and to praying together. And as they did that, verse 43 says that something happened to them. We see this word, ah, A-W-E. Ah came upon every soul. They were in awe at what God was doing among them. Many miracles were being done through the apostles. Christians and non-Christians saw God work powerfully in people's lives by radically changing the way that Christians used their money and understood their belongings and their property. The first Christians did not see their possessions as something to be hoarded, but as things to be shared And it says things to be sold so that the proceeds could go to the church and in order to take care of those Christians with fewer possessions. Verses 44 to 45 say, and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all 
as any had need. The early Christians were devoted to one another. They were devoted to taking care of one another. They looked out for one another. They saw that nobody among them was in need. And we want Cedar Home to be that way too. Verses 46 to 47 say, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the early Christians, many of whom were converts from Judaism, still attended worship services at the Jewish temple. See, they didn't have a problem with the Old Testament structures, the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament hymns, the ancient hymns. They just viewed them differently now. They said, all of this, you guys, Jesus fulfilled. He fulfilled all of this. It's the same God we've been worshiping for thousands of years. He's fulfilled the law now, though, for us. And besides being the place of worship, the temple was also the city center in Jerusalem. It was the place where you congregated uh, to, to see people during the day. And so by going to the temple regularly, daily, the Christians were rubbing shoulders with lots of non-believers and they were telling them about Jesus. And we don't see that explicitly in this passage, but we see it later on in Acts the point is this, their visit to the temple, uh, that was a time of worship, and it was also a time of evangelism. And in addition to being in the temple, it says they were in each other's homes. They hung out together. They broke bread together. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That means humble hearts. Do you and I receive our food with glad and humble hearts. When you sit down for a meal, do you believe that that meal time and everything that goes with it is entirely a gift of God's grace to you? And that it is way better than you deserve or I deserve. Do you believe that had not God given you the resources, you wouldn't have that food in front of you? You would not have that food in front of you if it weren't for God. When you sit alongside other believers at a meal, are you, do I slow down and say, man, I'm just glad and thankful to be with some brothers and sisters here who love Jesus. I'm so thankful for that. Meal time is a wonderful time to reflect on God's goodness and to pray to the Lord to respond in prayer, to thank him for providing for us, to love and encourage one another with our words, to laugh together, to share stories together, and to point one another to Jesus. Verse 47 says that as the Christians were praising God, they were also having favor with all the people. Okay. Now that, that phrase, all the people, amazes me because it's talking about the non-Christians. It's talking about the non-Christian community. The Christians had the favor of all the non-Christians in, in Jerusalem. That doesn't mean that the non-Christians agreed, obviously, with their beliefs, or that they liked all the Christians. 
But it means that people on the outside watched the church. They kept their eyes on the church and they said, I don't agree with what Christians believe. I do not believe that Jesus is God. But look at how they love one another. Have you ever seen anything like that? Look at how devoted they are to one another. Look at how they take care of one another. Look at how they forgive one another. Look at how full of love and joy and hope they are. I don't agree with them, but I wish I did. I wish I agreed with them. I want, an, I want that kind of joy and life and peace and relationships in my life. And while all this was happening, verse 47 says that the Lord kept adding. He kept adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Wow, what a picture of the church. It was not a perfect church by any means. Full of sinners being shaped into the image of Christ. And the rest of the New Testament describes many of the problems that the early church faced. But Cedar Home, we have much to learn from the early church. We want to be led by the same purposes that led the early church. And that's why we at Cedar Home exist to, to, to bring glory to God by making disciples through gospel-centered worship and community and service and multiplication because each of those four purposes are displayed in this passage. Okay, Where do we see worship in this passage? Well, we see the church devote itself to the apostles' teaching. They devote themselves to prayers. They stand in awe and wonder of God together. They attend worship services together. And they praise God together. Where do we see community in this passage? Well, we see the church devoted to fellowship. They're devoted to breaking bread together. That's listed twice. We see that they were all together, that they had all things in common. They shared with one another. They attended worship services together. And the word together in this passage doesn't just mean they were physically together. That is true. In the Greek, it also refers to a deeper spiritual reality that was going on. It refers to the spirit of unity and harmony of the early church. They were together, one in spirit, one in purpose. Where do we see service in this passage? Well, we see the apostles serving others through miracles. We see Christians serving one another by sharing all that they had with one another. We see Christians selling their belongings, giving the money to the church for the Lord's ministry, taking care of the poor. Where do we see multiplication in this passage? Well, we don't see Christians isolating themselves here. We don't see that. We see them rather going into public together, sharing the gospel with people together. We see the Lord added their number, added to their number day by day. He was multiplying the church. So the desire of the church was not to plateau numerically but to go out and love non-believers, to share the gospel, to make more disciples, to love one another as they lived together. If you're a Christian, then we love you. We do. If you're not a Christian, we love you. 
Okay, but I need to speak to the Christians here for a minute. If you believe that Jesus is God, if you've trusted in the gospel, if you're turning from sin in your life, if you're turning to Jesus and relying on him only to save you, we want you involved in our family here at Cedar Home. We want you to worship with us often. Often. We want you here every Sunday. I'm not taking attendance, okay, right now, but we, we want you here because we need you. You have gifts that this church needs. You are a part of this family and we need you here. And you need the church. You need the church. We want you here to fellowship with us often. We want you to, to serve with us often. We want you to make more disciples with us together often. And we want to do this not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week, in our homes, in this building, in all of our buildings, in all around the community as we live on mission together in this part of Washington that God has put us. Commit yourself to a local church family. If that is not Cedar Home, great. Commit, find a place, commit yourself to another church where, where you agree with its beliefs, where it's teaching the Bible, where uh, you're on board with its purpose and direction, where you support its leadership. But don't date the church forever. Don't tell a church family, I want to be with you, I want what you have, but I don't want to invest fully in you. If you consider Cedar Home your church family, then lock arms in fellowship with us and let's do this thing on mission together, right? We don't have much time. We got a community to reach for Christ and we've got sanctification that needs to happen in our lives and it happens together. And to find out more about being part of our church, I encourage you again, come to that meeting on November 15th after this service, 1130, RSVP. No commitment, just learn what we're all about. We'd love to meet you there. Now in the remainder of the sermon, I wanna briefly apply this passage to our lives in five ways. First, when I look at this passage, if I had one word to describe the early church, it is Love, love. The first Christians were filled with the love of Jesus. It oozed out of them through their love for God, through their love for one another. That's what true worship, true community, true service, true multiplication is all about. God's love. You guys, Cedar, if we do not have the love of God here, we have nothing do you hear that? Seriously, if we don't love one another with our thoughts, with our words, with our actions, we have nothing, we gain nothing. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, it doesn't matter if you give your money to the poor. It doesn't matter if you have lots of talent. It doesn't matter if you know the Bible. It doesn't matter if you have great, huge faith. It doesn't matter if you go be a missionary far away or here and you're burned at the stake for Jesus Christ. If you don't have love, you have nothing. That's the word of the New Testament. 
You gain nothing if you don't have the love of Jesus. We do not have the favor of God if the love of Christ has not made us born again. And the church will not have the favor of this community if we bite and devour one another. That's the word the New Testament uses. Be careful that you do not bite and devour one another and so consume one another. Do you want to reach the lost? Then the way you do it is to love your Christian brothers and sisters really well. It starts here. It starts here, you guys. And we want the love of Jesus oozing out of us. So pray. I'm praying that all the time. Lord, please fill me with love toward this person. Please make me abounding in love, like Philippians says. I need more love in my heart for people. This week, I've got an assignment for you guys. I encourage you to read and reread and then read again. And then one more time. 1 Corinthians 13. Take it word by word and see what love looks like and what love doesn't look like. We don't define love by whatever subjective opinions we have or whatever this world says. God says, this is love. So if you want to love, you do 1 Corinthians 13. There's your quiet times for this week, okay? 1 Corinthians 13. Let's love one another well, you guys, because Jesus loved us first. <laughs> the second way I'd apply this passage to your life is to encourage you to get into Christian community. A great first step, there's a lot of on-ramps at Cedar Home. I'm just going to tell you that a great first step would be to look into community groups, Okay. Many of our groups are filled to the brim right now, which is great, and we're starting uh, new ones as quickly as we possible can, uh, as quick as we possibly can. But um, community groups are essentially what we see in this passage. They're an expression of uh, Christians meeting weekly together to learn from God's word together, to break bread together, to make new Christian friendships to pray together and for one another and to serve together. If you want more information about community groups, you can contact our community group uh, pastor, uh, Brent Carter, uh, or I this is what I need, okay? Community group leaders or hosts, I need you to stand up right now, okay? Yep, yep, okay, stand up. If you're hosting a community group or if you're leading one, okay, I want you to just look at these faces, okay? These are people you can talk to about community groups just for more information. They can tell you more about it. Thank you, guys. I get it, man. It is not easy going to a community group first time, okay? It's, it's, it can be intimidating. It's not easy going to church for the first time. We want to help you make your first visit to a community group great. So please contact us. We want to help you do that. The third way we can apply this passage is by growing in hospitality, both as individuals and as a church. Hospitality means to love people by welcoming them into your home and serving them generously. Okay? It was one of the central ways that the early church flourished. There are 
Books used in secular universities that do sociological studies on the early church and they cannot explain how the church exponentially boomed like no other movement they've ever seen. But what they do know is that Christians were very hospitable. That's one of the best things they can say. You know, they can't, they can't play the God card, secular, but they say they were obviously very loving and warm to one another. Some of us are good at hospitality naturally. Some of us aren't, but we can all grow in it. And it is a powerful tool for fellowship and for ministry and for evangelism. This week, uh, I read that the two main reasons that Christians are reluctant to having people over to their homes for fellowship are one, because the thought of having people over frightens some Christians, and two, some Christians feel that their home furnishings are too modest or inadequate. And other Christians say they're too busy for fellowship, the hospitality is too expensive and too exhausting. When Cindy and I were first married, we lived in Denver and we lived in a really small one bedroom apartment and we ate dinner on the floor of the living room every night. And some of you remember those times probably in your life, right? I, I was the youth director at a church that was pretty rich. And most of the members were pretty affluent. And it just did not make sense in my mind to invite people over to our tiny, unimpressive apartment when we could meet in the homes of people who had more space, more wealth. And as I thought about this, that this week, I was convicted when I read part of a book by Ajith Fernando who writes... To be ashamed of our furniture or afraid of serving an inadequate meal can best be described as pride. True hospitality comes before pride. It has nothing to do with impressing people, but everything to do with making them feel welcome and wanted. That's so true. Consider how you can welcome brothers and sisters in Christ into your living space, either for coffee, for an hour, for a meal, or just for desserts, or, uh, or maybe just to play games together. And uh, if you want to read a short book about hospitality that's really been getting my mind going on this, I recommend this book called The Hospitality Commands by Alexander Strauch. He's a guy I met in Denver this summer, and he totally practiced what he preaches. I was a complete stranger. He welcomed me into his house. Come on in. Come on in. Sit in the back porch. What do you want me to get you to drink? I was like, wow. Okay, thanks. Um, but it was great. It was great. And, and this book really helped me see that this has been a vibrant and important part of the Christian church for many centuries. A fourth application from today's passage is learn how God has wired you to serve in his kingdom. Learn how God has wired you to serve in his kingdom. God has gifted you. He has created you. You are unique. And if you want one resource that will help you to get going on this, to discern how you can use your gifts for God's glory, I'll recommend this book called Shape by Eric Rees. Okay? And what he does in this book, I went through this with the teenagers. He helps you identify your spiritual gifts that God's given you, your heart, your, your, the inclinations. What do you love to do? What are your abilities? Um, 
your personality and what experiences have shaped you. And he does this so you can help get a better idea of how has God wired me to serve him. And uh, you, you might want to read this book with your spouse or with a group of friends or whatever, but it, it, it would be a great way for you to figure out how does God want to use me here in the church and also outside the church. Additionally, uh, I want to encourage you to joyfully continue to give your finances to the Lord uh, for the church and for his ministry here in Stanwood. And I want to just encourage you and, th- and thank you for giving to the Lord Jesus. There is not a greater investment we could make with our money. And also, let us be a sharing church. Okay? Share our possessions. Let's share with one another. None of us really owns anything. That's the truth. None of it goes with us after this life. We have a lot of stuff God's given us. He's loaned us for a little while. And our purpose is to, to share it, to use it for God's glory on earth. And the fifth way we can apply this passage to our lives is by growing in outreach and evangelism, maturing in that. Okay? I don't know many people who find it really easy to have spiritual conversations with non-believers. And some of you do have that gift, but many of us don't. And all of us are called to share this good news so that uh, that means that we can all grow in this area. That's why next Sunday we're starting a new Sunday school class for adults on this very topic. It's a nine-week class called Gospel-Shaped Outreach. And we're going to meet at 9 a.m. in the chapel next door. The class is going to be led by John Conley. Just join us for that, please, if you can. Even if you don't normally come to, to, to Sunday mornings, come for other people. Be an encouragement to other people. Unless you have totally mastered evangelism, okay? And I would love to talk to you if that's the case. But man, we need to grow, and it's a joy in learning how we can spread the glory of Jesus through our testimonies. And just like the first Christian, Cedar Home exists to bring glory to God by making disciples through gospel-centered worship, community, service, and multiplication. And we pursue this mission together, desperately desiring to do it with love. With love. We love the Lord. We love one another because God loved us first. You are loved, and you need to know that. Let's celebrate God's love together now as we take the Lord's Supper together. And today, hey, this is our first time doing it in this room. So just need to be patient and and, uh, we'll go with the flow. But as the deacons come forward, what I want to do is prepare our hearts. So let's take a minute just to pray to the Lord to thank him, to worship him with our thoughts. If there are sins in our life which are hurting our fellowship with God, let's confess those sins to the Lord right now. Let's remember that God calls us to repent, to turn from those sins, and to celebrate that Jesus has died for those sins. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for loving us when we were still far away. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for allowing us to be part of your mission to take you and to take your love to the lost, to the broken, and to this dying world around us. Lord, we want to take a few minutes now to pray to you privately, quietly, 
So please hear our prayers.